Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us for the Restore Community Church podcast. My name is Theo Davis. I'm the digital pastor here at Restore, and we're continuing our series, How We Love Matters, a call to practice relentless racial reconciliation. And my friends, you are in for a treat right now because... Evan Graham from our Waldo campus in South KC uh, is just about to preach an amazing message on justice. We've talked about love, empathy, sacrifice last week, and now we are dipping into justice. And he's approaching it from an angle that I've personally never heard before. And I was just so uh, enamored with uh, all the things that he was talking about. So please sit back and enjoy. Take some notes as you're about to hear my friend Evan Graham talk about justice. Let's take a listen. John Perkins was born in 1930 in Mississippi, which is a difficult time and place to live if you're a black man like Perkins is in the 30s. He fled the South as soon as he could. But later on in his life, an encounter with Jesus caused him to return to the very place he promised he would never go back to, Mississippi. He ended up, long story short, finding a ministry there in his hometown, serving low-income kids that grew up just like he did. And two of his children, Spencer and Joni, ended up being the first two black students to ever enroll at Minden Hall Public High School there in his hometown. In that very same year that they enrolled, there actually happened to end up being some sort, a bit of a revival breakout in the chapel classroom of that high school. There were hundreds of kids coming down to the front of their classroom in a sobbing mess and meeting Jesus in salvation in like third period chapel class, <laughs> which is not the place you would typically expect a revival to break out. But despite all the salvation and baptisms, In the two years that the Perkins kids were enrolled and not a single student ever spoke to them in the hallway or sat down in the cafeteria with them for lunch. Somehow, the walk down the aisle to meet Jesus had been divorced from the walk across the cafeteria to learn the name and the story of the only two black kids in this dominantly white school. Do you see the disconnect? It's the same disconnect that Jesus saw in Matthew 21. If you've got a Bible with you, you can open it up there. And my name is Evan Graham. I'm the Waldo Campus Pastor, if we haven't met before. And you're joining us for a week four of a five-week-long series that we're in right now called How We Love Matters. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so according to Jesus, the way that we love is the litmus test as to whether we will be recognized as his disciples by the world. And learning how to love like Jesus did is what this series has all been about. And so we kicked it off talking about why love in particular is such a big deal to Jesus. And then from there, we moved to talking about specific practices of love that we can cultivate if we want to sort of recapture this reputation Jesus envisioned for his followers. And so the first practice was empathy. We explored that in week two. And then last week, we talked about sacrifice in week three. And now today... We come to a topic I am very excited to talk about, and that is the topic of justice. Love pursues justice. Or as the philosopher Colonel West says it, love in public is called justice. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to do justice, all of us. 
Micah 6.8 says it directly. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And now before getting too deep into this teaching, justice means all kinds of things to different people. So what is justice? What do we mean by justice? The best way I know how to define it is by distinguishing it from its close relative, mercy. And there's a fictional story that illustrates this difference really, really well. So imagine with me, two people, mercy and justice, are playing together by the riverside. When all of a sudden in this river, they see a man flowing downstream, crying out for help because he is drowning. What happens? Mercy springs into action. She runs into the river. She grabs the man. She pulls him up onto the bank. She performs CPR and luckily saves him just in the nick of time. But before Mercy can even catch her breath after saving this first man, all of the sudden, she sees another man floating downstream, drowning in the river. So Mercy leaves the other man there with justice, runs into the river again, pulls him out onto the banks and saves this man too. And while they're getting the second man recovered, all of a sudden, believe it or not, a third man starts floating down the river, drowning. And Mercy once again goes to grab him like the others. And as Mercy, so tired as she is from helping these people, is struggling to get this guy up out of the river and onto the banks. She looks up for her friend Justice to help. And she sees Justice leaving her and running up river. Mercy shouts out, Justice, where are you going? And Justice shouts back, I'm going up here to see who's throwing all these guys down the river. Mercy helps the individual who is drowning. Justice identifies the root problem and says, we have to fix this. Mercy is about humanizing, identifying, and serving those who are forced to live on the margins of our society. Justice is about correcting the systems and structures that marginalize them in the first place. And Jesus does and is about both. Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, doesn't only serve the victimized by society, he also calls the system what it is and then bends it toward justice. Jesus does mercy and justice. But today, we're going to focus on just one side of that equation, and that is justice. To put it in a definition, I define justice as love in action, righting the wrongs that keep God's creation from wholeness from experiencing what they deserve to experience as God's creation. That means justice is righting the wrongs in someone's inner life, like prejudice, that caused them to meet, mistreat someone based on the way they look or the way that they think. Justice, it's righting the wrongs in our corporations that lead to, to, to the degradation of the earth and those who inhabit the earth. Justice, it's setting those who oppress others free from their systems of oppression and their superiority. It's correcting systems that cause mass incarceration or tearing down unfair lending practices and other barriers to home ownership that black people or Hispanic people or other minorities might face. That is justice. It is love in action, righting wrongs that keep God's creation from wholeness. We see this definition clearly play out in Matthew 21, where I had you open your Bibles up to. Starting in verse 12, here's what we read. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove all who were buying and selling, and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. 
Now, this is an infinite or an infamous moment in the life of Jesus. And it begins like any other great story by going straight into the action. We read that Jesus, he enters the temple courts of Jerusalem, looks around, sees that it's been overrun by corruption and injustice and these people who are trying to rip off the most poor people in society by selling them things at an overpriced uh, cost. And Jesus, he sees all of this going on and he's like, and he starts flipping and throwing tables around and he's picking up cash registers and he's emptying them out with change spilling across the stone floor and cash raining from the sky. He's kicking dove cages over them. There's feathers flying all into the air. In John, we read that Jesus has like a homemade whip that he's cracking at the sky and he's leading this stampede of people down the steps and out the temple. The meek and mild Savior is raging. (laughs) And that's part of the reason why this story is so infamous, right? Because it appears to be The one time in all of the Gospels where we see this side of Jesus, we're used to seeing Jesus depicted as kind to strangers and slow to judge others and patient with his disciples, no matter how many dumb things they say or horrible questions they ask. But all of the sudden, here, we see another side of Jesus. He's raging and he's furious and he's impulsive and maybe even mean. Or is he? Is he really impulsively acting with outrage? See, the story gets a little bit more interesting if you look at Mark's account of Jesus raging in the temple and rewind the tape a few verses. Mark 11, 11 says this, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus got to the temple took a look around, noticed what was happening inside, mulled things over, and then went home the day before. Mark eleven twelve 12 then says, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. So Jesus saw what he saw back at the temple, slept on it, then went back to the same temple the following morning and began this temple tirade. That means the actions of flipping tables and kicking dove cages and all of the others were premeditated. See, most of us read this story like Jesus sort of flew off the handlebars in this spontaneous outburst of anger. He acted impulsively with fury or reactively in rage. He got one look at the temple and then just lost his mind. But that's not it. This was carefully considered strategically planned and then meticulously executed and likely it was prayed over all of the night before about how Jesus was going to go about this. Now hear me say this clearly though, I am not saying Jesus is stoic or pretending to feel emotion. Jesus for sure felt anger at what he saw. He needed a whole night to sleep on how he was going to respond to it. Jesus' response, it was passionate and it was emotional, yet it was still controlled and it was still planned. Jesus, he strategically oriented his passion toward productive ends that would make right what was wrong in the temple. That's why Jesus decides not to flip any people, but he only flips the furniture in the room. And that's an important lesson as we learn to do justice as Jesus does justice. That when we encounter injustice, we should be angry. We should even feel outraged. If we feel nothing, that's a problem. But we have to learn, like Jesus, to not just sort of react impulsively in outrage, 
But instead, when it comes to justice, to strategically orient all of those feelings and passions we have toward productive ends that go after the root causes of injustice and not just the symptoms. I think that's why Jesus took a night to sleep on it. How is Jesus going to go about attacking the root cause of injustice and not just the symptoms? So Jesus here is not committing a crime of impulsive outrage. It's Ocean's Eleven. (laughs) It's strategically thought through. But what exactly is the wrong that Jesus is saying that he gets so worked up about that he has to sleep on how he's going to strategically write it? We find this out when Jesus finally opens his mouth after flipping tables and he says this, It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now there's a whole lot of context behind this statement. This house of prayer line, it's actually not original to Jesus. He's borrowing it from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, who is most well known for rebuking Israel, for divorcing private spirituality, things like prayer and scripture meditation from public spirituality, like care for the poor and the works of justice. In the den of robbers bit, that's Jeremiah. And these words he used to rebuke the priests of his time during the exile. So Jesus quotes familiar lines from familiar prophets to deliver a common message. And that message, if we were to sum it up in a single word, would be the Hebrew word, sadaka. Sadaka. See, the biblical term for personal righteousness is sadaka. And the biblical Hebrew term for outward justice is, guess what? Sadaka. That means when you read the Old Testament, most places, when you read righteous, you can just sub in justice and vice versa. And that's important because it means that biblically speaking, you cannot separate personal righteousness from outward works of justice. To be righteous is to care for the poor, and to care for the poor is to be righteous. That's why we have to reject any claim that says, don't worry about justice. Don't get into social issues, just preach the gospel, as if those two things can be separated. Don't allow anyone to tell you that the gospel only has these vertical implications between you and God, and that there are no horizontal horizontal social implications. The prophets of the Old Testament and all of the writers of Scripture and the early church fathers and mothers down through history reject that claim. See, the drum that the prophets keep beating throughout the Old Testament and that Jesus is calling back to with that line is that these righteous people, these religious leaders in the temple are trying to separate something that God has joined together, personal righteousness and outward justice. That separation is what Jesus here is so worked up about in the temple of his day. That's the wrong that he is writing. And it's the exact same wrong that the Perkins children experienced in their high school in the American South, and that many still experience today. You see, the claim of Jesus here is that our standing with God does not only rest on private personal spirituality, but on how we stand with the marginalized. It isn't only about revivals in the chapel class, it's also about racial justice in the school system. That is the message Jesus is delivering when he quotes these familiar words in the temple courts to religious leaders. See, because the people that Jesus is saying that sentence to were devout. Sabbath? We invented that. You're welcome, overworked Americans, for a day off. Prayer? Absolutely. Three times a day, on the hour, I never miss it. Scripture? No, I don't read it. I memorize it and then recite it. 
The priests in this temple that Jesus is saying those words to were what we might call spiritually formed. They had personal righteousness down to a science. The trouble was their personal righteousness, their spiritual formation was not spilling the banks of their lives to others. See, when we devote ourselves to personal righteousness without equally devoting ourselves to outward justice, it isn't the way of Jesus we are practicing. It ends up being something more like what I call spiritual wellness. When all of our practice does not edge us us nearer to the margins of our society, when it does not compel us to right wrongs in the systems and structures of our day, in the hearts and lives of others and ourselves, we are separating something in our lives God has fundamentally joined together. Personal righteousness and outward justice, tzedakah. Now hindsight makes it so easy to see the dysfunctional spirituality of the temple in the first century or at a high school in the American South. But what about us? I mean, aren't we susceptible to the same condition that I am calling spiritual wellness, but just cloaked in a new disguise for a new time and a new culture? I think spiritual wellness today may sound something like, oh yeah, I follow the way of Jesus. I practice Sabbath to rest from my work to ensure I'm emotionally healthy. I I attend church every single Sunday. I maybe even serve. I meditate on scripture in the morning and pray in silence and solitude in the night so that I can become more mindful. Now everything on that list is a good thing. It's great, and and we ought to be practicing those things. But when it's not spent on others, truth be told, it's a lifestyle, not the way of Jesus. See, if your discipleship is not edging you nearer, increasingly toward the margins of society to do justice, that same disconnect that Jesus speaks to is alive and well within you, cloaked in the clever disguise of a new time and a new place. Justice is not an optional expression of worship for certain Christians who have a certain political leaning. It is an inseparable part of what it means for all of us to follow Jesus. That's why when Dorothy Day was asked, how do you live the gospel? Her answer was, stay close to the poor. So is your discipleship to Jesus increasing your proximity to the marginalized? Is your discipleship to Jesus leading you to practice justice? If it isn't, start. Start providing care for a foster family, or providing aid for a refugee, or volunteer at a nonprofit that serves veterans, or just meet a kid who needs someone who's consistent in their life and become that source of consistency. Or start mopping the floors at a local rehab, or befriend a houseless person that you pass by on the street, or give to an organization that's working for racial justice, or Watch the kids of the single mother who lives on your street so she can have a night out. Take up caregiving for a person with different abilities than you part-time on the weekends. Or volunteer at a food pantry with your kids. Find that pressure point of your everyday community that also happens to meet the resources and the passions of your heart. There's an invitation there for you to start practicing justice. To start righting wrongs in your everyday community. And this is exactly what we see Jesus do in our text after he calls out this split in the religious leaders. He does outward justice. He drives the corruption out of the temple, and then the blind and the lame and the down and out come to him. And what does Jesus do? He heals them. He moves them toward wholeness. But for Jesus, justice doesn't stop there. Justice doesn't stop with acts of charity. Jesus does more than just heal the poor and then move on. See, we've already covered that Jesus' temple cleansing, it's not an act of impulse. Jesus 
uh, uh, left the city and he slept on it. That means Jesus was not sleeping in Jerusalem. So where was Jesus laying his head at night? Earlier we read this. Since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Bethany. Jesus is crashing in the village of Bethany. But later on in the gospel, the gospel writer Mark, he gets a bit more specific about who in Bethany Jesus is staying with. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. The home of Simon the leper. That is significant. See, to enter the home of a leper, to eat at their table, to share their company, to stay with them through the night, would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. That means until Jesus undergoes the rigorous, time-consuming, Levitical cleansing process, Jesus couldn't go all the way into the temple, just like those that he was healing. And this is happening during Passover week, and Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, so this is a big deal. So Jesus' justice does not stop with just the outsiders being able to come into the temple and being called clean. Jesus also went out and was called contaminated by associating himself with the outsiders. Jesus does more than just invite the marginalized onto his turf. He got comfortable on theirs. Throughout the Gospels, the religious leaders aren't offended that Jesus would do justice by serving the poor, being a missionary to the marginalized. They are instead primarily offended that he would recline at a table with them, that he would look them on level ground eye to eye, that he would associate with them like family and call them brother and sister. They're offended that Jesus would get close enough to know the people that he is serving. In their minds, it's a crime of relationship. And when it comes to doing justice, my fear is that for many of us, the work may stop at charity and never move toward relationship. That it might stay in the temple but never extend into the home. See, when we stop keeping a safe distance and actually get close enough to know the people that we serve, when we stop advocating for the cause and get to know the name and the face and the story beneath the cause, when we stop sending cards to the hospital and start packing and dressing the wound ourselves, when we start educating ourselves about the burdens of others and instead start shouldering them ourselves, that is when we begin to truly do the work of justice. If there is no friendship and no sharing of life with the poor or the marginalized, then there is no authentic commitment to justice. Because love can only exist between equals. That's why ultimately David Fitch concludes, while most churches have programs to reach out to the homeless, destitute, or broken peoples, rarely do we minister to them by making them a part of our congregation. Our local congregations look strangely homogenous in comparison to our visions and programs. Justice cannot stop with just programs to reach out to people. It has to become about relationship. And so I want you to really hear me say this, Restore. It is not enough to serve the poor. Jesus does not call us to charity. He calls us to family. Our call is to share the whole of our lives, not just a specified portion of our income or a scheduled allotment of our time. Our call is not only to alleviate the practical needs of the down and out. It is to love them into a kingdom in, the way, in a way that really costs us something and is only complete when they are sitting side by side with us in gatherings or when we're passing rolls to them across the table at our houses. That is what we are called to. 
See, the world is not waiting on a slick church with awesome branding and cool gatherings. But don't make the opposite mistake either. The world also isn't waiting on a woke church with all the right social standings and an amazing Twitter feed. The world is awaiting a different kind of family. And until that's who the church becomes, people whose friendships do not make sense by the city's invisible dividing lines and unspoken codes of conduct, our corners of the world that we occupy keep waiting. They keep waiting to see the image of Jesus come alive in our day and age, in our time and place. Can't the last be first in here? At least right now. At least for us. Just like they were for the earliest Christians. See, in the Greco-Roman society where the early church took root, one of its dominant reputations was that of a people of justice. A people who wrote, who wrote wrongs in their systems and in their places. Just one example is what the early church did for women in that world, that Greco-Roman world. See, women in the earliest centuries were powerless and were described as possessions in the legal uh, language of the empire. So sex slavery, or what we commonly call sex trafficking today, was actually accepted as the norm. And then the early church came along. And they became the first community in history to call that injustice by its name and then call the surrounding society to account. And the historian Kyle Harper, he says that you can actually trace the spread of the early church by tracing the legal ban of sexual slavery throughout the Roman Empire. And in his estimation, the most reliable index, the most reliable way to keep track for how the early church spread is the legal overturning of sexual violence against victimized women. So wherever sex slavery was overturned, there was where the church had spread. And where the church had spread to, there was the overturning of sex slavery. You know what that sounds like? Good news. It sounds like the good news of the kingdom of God. It sounds like justice. It sounds like the righting of wrongs that are keeping God's creation from wholeness. And how did the early church do this? by acts of mercy and charity, by serving marginalized women and rescuing them from their bondage and putting their lives on the line to do so? Yes, most definitely, but not only that. It was also by making women an integral part of the family. It was by making those who were last, by all accounts of their society, first in their communities. It was through the overturning of tables in the empire and through friendship with the oppressed women in the churches. It was through acts of justice that told women implicitly or explicitly, regardless of what others have done to you and said to you, you have dignity. For the image of God lives within you and that cannot be taken away. And the Son of God died for you that you might literally, literally be set free. You will not be treated in here like you were treated out there. Out there you were enslaved, but in here you are free. Out there you were property, but in here you are a human being. Out there you were powerless, and here you are an equal. For as the Apostle Paul wrote, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. May that be said of us. Would you pray with me? God, Father, you are a God of justice. 
A God that as we look through history has been helping your people right wrongs. Whether it happens all the way back in the book of Genesis or now to, in our day and on our age. Righting wrongs of racial injustice or economic injustice here in our culture, in our day and age. May we be a people committed to righting wrongs, regardless of what it costs us. And through that, may we regain the original reputation you envisioned for us, a people of love. It's through Christ our Lord, I pray. Amen.